Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about unleashing courageous love in small and big ways. Today on the podcast, we're exploring how you outgrow your ghosts. And I am joined once again by Foothill Senior Minister, Reverend Gretchen Haley. Hey, Gretchen. Hey. We're talking about ghosts today. We are. It's been a whole series of weeks on ghosts. But actually, this Sunday, somebody came up to me and said she felt like we could take a whole year and explore a series on ghosts because there were so many things that we might need to look at about things that haunted us. A whole year on living with ghosts. I mean, it it, a little much. <laughs> but I think part of that's true. I mean, ghosts are ghosts because they hang around, because we always seem to live with them. We are pushed to move so quickly to the next thing that a lot of us don't really do that work you've been doing on the podcast of, you know, lifting up how we've come to terms with things. Hmm. So we just put, have to push through. There's a real, like so much leftover work of not having really come to terms with our past and done that integration. Once you start talking about it, how much you realize has been left without fully reconciling with it. The sermon we're going to listen to has a kind of unique Genesis story in terms of how it came into being. This sermon, actually, the very first version of it I gave was in 2009. So talk about ghosts from the past. I was in my internship in the Unitarian Universalist Church of Boulder, pretty early in my internship even. So here I am 12 years later after preaching like almost every Sunday since as we've been thinking about um, this ghost series and living with ghosts, I'm aware of in the congregation and a theme that comes up, I don't know, every few years or so, it kind of rises in terms of a pressing question, which is a, a question of sort of people struggling with or unsure what to do with their experiences of religion from the past. And some of that is more pressing, more personal, and some of it's just the collective sense of religion as a, a thing that causes injury. And so this is something because of just who we are at just as a, con- as a faith community, people who've experienced that often have that on their, on their hearts. And so I was starting to feel this as another ar- around of that question that was being asked and considered among our community as we've asked people to think about what's essential about our religious community. So I felt like it was just a question that needed to be encountered again. And so I really wanted to go back and think about that, how I answered it 12 years ago. And just to think about like in a really intentional way, how I have shifted in as a result of these 12 years in ministry and in congregational life and being in community. And then also just my own life shifts, things, the challenges that I've encountered since then, and the ways I've tried to learn to make meetings since then, my sense of Unitarian Universalism since then. So all of that was at work as I rewrote the text for this Sunday. As you were rewriting it, what did you notice was different between the first time and this time? And what did you notice was a through line that was consistent? Mm -hmm. What really stood out for me as different was, maybe you relate with this, but at the time, I had a really strong sense of wanting to 
revise Unitarian Universalism in particular. Like I wanted to work on and call on Unitarian Universalists and Unitarian Universalism to shift how we think about and engage theological questions and, and mm-hmm. what it means to, to grow spiritually. So that was the framework that, you know, in my internship, I was coming at this, like uh, my message is really focused on we as Unitarian Universalists and Unitarian Universalism needs to shift in these ways and think about spiritual growth in these ways. Coming at it now, like it, it, I, that felt really parochial to me. Parochial in the sense of being small? Too small and and too insular, you know, like as if our message only applies to the however many people identify as Unitarian Universalists or go to Unitarian Universalist churches. Hmm. And so I really, I felt like, like what we need to talk about is, you know, what do we, we, what does the world need right now in terms of how we think about growth and how we think about um, faith and what do we need as a, you know, I talk about this idea of growing spiritually and we need to grow souls in 3D. You know, what does that mean as it applies to not UU churches, but as it applies to what's going on in the world today and to people's lives today? And just, I think that's inevitable as sort of growing in my own, in ministry and growing in my life, but maybe also in, in, in a sense of just what's happened in the world. And then in terms of what's the same I, I just I I told you this before. I think there's there's something about this message that is fundamental to my sense of call to ministry, which is that I really believe in reckoning for real with every every part of religious practice and religious ways of making meaning of making available to us all the tools of spiritual practice and spiritual meaning making. And not getting too tied up in a deconstructive mode and instead trying to be always in a place of construct constructing and growing and growing and putting every again, putting everything on the table. Can I ask you a question about yeah. it? Yeah. I wondered how these stories hit you as somebody that didn't grow up with a particular religious tradition. How do you think about some of these stories and does it connect for you? I had a unique experience. I grew up outside a religious tradition, looking from the outside in to other people's religious practices, not understanding them, but yet not having kind of an emotional experience with it. And so as I encountered Buddhism and Unitarian Universalism in my my teenage years and then went into seminary, I was doing construction, right? I was starting from a, a very kind of neutral place which which felt very free. Like I was assembling the parts and I was making the relationships and I was building the community. And what I witnessed other people who were coming from other places was that they didn't feel free to do that construction. There were words, there were practices, there were places even that they couldn't go because of the, the wounds and the trauma of the past. And that's both 
individual, like individual people I met, but also the communities that I were a part of. You could feel the, the woundedness from particular eras, particular experiences of, of religion. I started with a real sense of compassion for that. And to be honest, I, I also got to a place of resentment. Like I started to resent the, the way that people were only able to stay in deconstruction. To kind of paraphrase Cheryl Walker, is good food only if you're starving? What I realized is that our communities, because we attracted people seeking freedom, and that's expressed itself as individualism, and, and freedom from a certain past, rather than a freedom to, that we were per perpetually stuck consuming food that was spiritual nourishment that was like anemic. Yeah. Because it didn't move to that next step. And so I think about that as this process of people, they come out of a faith, they, it's so toxic to them, they can't touch any of it. But then instead of growing to a place in which they can metabolize some of that, re-understand it, they become a prisoner of their own freedom. They don't move to a reconstruction. Hmm. I think I want to play the, the reading from Rob Hardy's about the size yeah, of our soul. Yeah, it's so good. Because I think it'll help frame the, this conversation. So this is UU Minister Rob Hardy's reflecting on the, the work of Bernard Loomer, who is a process theologian, and what it means to grow our souls. And this is read by our colleague, Reverend Elaine Aaron Tenbrink. Not long after Divinity School, I stumbled upon the work of theologian Bernard Loomer. Loomer is an important figure in process theology a movement that contends that the universe is always growing in size and complexity, and that as the universe grows, so does God, and so must we. Later in life, Loomer was a member of the First Unitarian Church of Berkeley, California, where on Sundays after church he would lead thought-provoking theological conversations. After describing his vision of the complexity of creation, he often asked the group, what is the size of your soul? By which he meant, what is your soul's ability to grow and expand, to stretch when life throws more contradictions your way? Size was the defining concept in Loomer's spirituality. He almost always wrote the word S. I-Z-E, with capital letters and dashes, to better convey the spaciousness that he intended by using the word. Loomer describes the concept this way. By S-I-Z-E, I mean the capacity of a person's soul, the range and depth of his love, his capacity for relationships. I mean the volume of life you can take into your being and still maintain your integrity and individuality. The intensity and variety of outlook you can entertain in the unity of your being without feeling defensive or insecure. I mean the strength of your spirit to encourage others to become freer in the development of their diversity and uniqueness. I mean the power to sustain more complex and enriching tensions. 
Before Bernard Loomer, I used to think of spiritual growth as a process of growing in a vertical kind of way. I took the image from Jack and the Beanstalk. We're here on earth, God is up in heaven, and spiritual growth means growing like that beanstalk, higher and higher, ever closer to God. But in that model, we end up with our head in the clouds, another recipe for retreat. Loomer showed me that spiritual growth isn't about a vertical ascent, but about growth in every dimension at once. It's spirituality in 3D. We need souls that can take in the world in all its complexity and diversity, yet still maintain our integrity. And we need souls that can love and be in relationship with all of this complexity. We need a spiritual posture of embrace. One, one part of that that really stands out to me is the capacity to hold nuance and complexity with non-reactiveness and compassion. That spiritual growth, that, that growing the size of our souls means that we have space to hold contradiction, complexity, nuance, different perspectives an ability to differentiate what's going on in someone else and what's going on in me. What I see in our society right now is that we are so reactive to difference. We play lip service to diversity, and yet we are incredibly reactive when anyone says anything that we might disagree with or not understand. I think we have a real impulse towards purity in that like, we want to keep our space and therefore our, you know, our head space, our heart space safe and a sense of like the, the things that we agree with are, are the things we can take in there's a there's an adrian rich poem where one of the lines she says that self-defense be not the arm's first motion and that was sort of my mantra going like through seminary and in early ministry still in a lot of ways that that like to find postures where and this is why i love rob's notion of a spiritual posture of embrace that that is that we're not the first move is not always self defense so that we can receive even if we completely disagree and i think that's that we really have lost that as a as a mode to disagree feels fundamentally dangerous to us right now but there's something about a way of of being and, and I, you know i'm sure we could dissect that to like what's the original what's the potential harm in that but that is the move and so then what does it take for us to be willing to receive even if we profoundly disagree and to receive someone who we find reprehensible even as a part of humanity and to receive that and what is it what does it take in our hearts to to receive with compassion someone we and, and not it doesn't mean we find them okay it doesn't mean we find them what they're doing acceptable in any way it just means we're able to receive. I remember a moment when I was a chaplain at the hospital and I walked into a patient's room and I sat down and we started talking and she assumed I was Christian because we were in Boston and I was, you know, a white pastorish looking dude walking in. 
she started talking about her faith. And at one point she said, you know, we're the, we're the real type of Christians in my church. You know, the ones that don't let the gays marry. Being a, a queer myself, not married then, but married now. I remember having this moment of like, huh, what do I do with that? And how this connects is that in that moment, I experienced a freedom to not react and to not actually care. Like my purpose there wasn't about telling her her church was wrong. My purpose there was simply to hold space for her, the uncertainty of her medical future, her life's future, because it didn't trigger me. I was free. I didn't, I don't agree with her. I don't think the real types of Christians are the ones that <laughs> don't let gays marry. But to have the freedom to hold her still in compassion and the freedom to choose how to respond to her and the freedom to know that I don't agree with her, to be able to hold all those things at the same time. like It feels like that is the skill that we are trying to invoke. And I'm not saying I do this perfectly. I, I, I don't most of the time. I mean, I feel like my husband the other day, he like asked me to do something nicely and I bit his head off because I was assuming that he was implying something else. Like, <laughs> You did not have a spiritual posture of embrace. I did not have a spiritual and prosperous place. I had a lot of self-defense. Um, <laughs> imagine if we can encounter not only each other, but also our own past with that level of compassion and freedom. I, th I really think that's what you're getting at in, in this sermon, is that vision. Should we listen to it? Let's. So when I was in second grade, I was invited to make my first communion early. The rest of my class in my very small Catholic school would still wait and have their first communion a few months later at the regular time. But there, apparently there was something about me that said I didn't need to wait anymore for this important rite of passage. I had a special mass set aside where I would make my first communion. As an adult, I've tried to make sense of this. I, I've asked my mom to try to explain, and all she said is, well, I, I guess you were advanced. I was seven. Regardless, I took that invitation to make my first communion early very seriously, and I worked really hard to prepare. I set up a meeting with my priest. I had some questions. I'd written them out all in advance with with room after each question for his answer. So I wrote out the hand wrote that question and left some space, the next question. It was a pretty long list. Like, I don't remember exactly, but I don't know, 10 or 12 questions. But I do remember what I thought of as the most important question, which was how do I become a famous saint? In my seven-year-old mind, faith and achievement were one and the same, which I mean, as you can see from the story, how I might think that spirituality was a destination and there were clear measures of success along the way. Sainthood, for example, and I was determined to succeed. Rather than how big is your soul, I was sure the more relevant question was, 
something more like, how close are you to the top? Many of us long past the second grade think of spiritual growth and really any kind of human growth like this, that it is linear, upwards, unidirectional. Our Western culture teaches us that this is how life really is after all, that there's a moment of a beginning, a middle, and an end, single direction, single march upwards and onwards forever, as Unitarian James Freeman Clark wrote. Our stories are told this way and reimagine our lives unfolding this way, which means that if at some point in our single straight path towards enlightenment, we come to change our beliefs, especially in a pretty significant way, if we change what we think of as right or wrong, or when we start to reject old tools or and embrace new ones for making meaning, we tend to understand these things as a kind of spiritual do-over. When the path of spiritual development is only linear and one way, a change in some core belief or affiliation can only mean that you are starting over, totally rejecting that prior path often with a degree of scorn passed at that past way of belief or even shame. Now, this doesn't just happen with religious beliefs. This week, as many of us sit down to dinner with family and friends, we will encounter again that old familiar story of Thanksgiving. I remember the first few Thanksgiving I, I came home to after being at college after having finally learned the truth about this story, I mean, the lie about this story, that there was some sort of make nice between the Puritans and the Native Americans over corn and mashed potatoes, I had every defense up around the whole experience. And I looked with a sort of disdain on anyone who seemed to be enjoying themselves. How could they believe this, this garbage? I was grateful that I had outgrown these old beliefs and moved on. A number of years ago, I was at Pride in Denver. Now, it's hard to remember now, but for a long time, it would have been almost unbelievable to think that churches would show up at Pride. I mean, other than as protesters. Now, churches and religious groups show up in full force, waving flags and banners. But for a long time, most of Pride's history, it was very rare. But this one year, I remember suddenly the Metropolitan Community Church, the MCC, or what most Christians and most queers think of as the gay church. That year, the gay church seemed to be everywhere. And unlike the leather daddies and the dykes on bikes, this was one group that made me feel really uncomfortable. I looked at their marchers with a kind of pity and fear and anger. Gay Christians? I mean, why do they even try? Are they so self-hating and self-punishing that they must worship the very God that fuels fear and judgment against them? I felt entirely satisfied with my own progress and having outgrown those beliefs and only wondered why they hadn't. A few summers later with my bare feet hanging over a small basin of water, my body remembered why. 
I was by then in my second year of seminary, what what some might call a significant step in the progress of spiritual success. Except by then, I started to have the sense that all my past spiritual paths weren't entirely in the rear view mirror. Instead of a continuous linear progress on a single path, I had started to feel surrounded by unresolved stories and frameworks for making meaning that despite my every intention to leave these wrongheaded and even harmful notions in the past, they kept showing up, especially in times of grief or struggle or when I'd go searching for a way to make sense of life's challenges or when I needed to provide comfort. Old notions laden with shame would worm their way in or a longing for ritual would would appear like in my bones, or my cynicism and self-satisfaction would come up against my desire for connection, especially as I tried to grow into my new role as a minister. These past understandings and experiences would come haunting me like ghosts of my religious and philosophical past. Maybe no more than on that day in that large sanctuary, I had been led there to this back corner by a new friend, a Catholic woman, also in her second year of seminary, a Catholic woman in her second year of seminary. She had found there amongst the many people traveling this large space as a part of an innovative ecumenical worship service at the end of a week-long retreat for people considering congregational ministry. Echoing through this space were sweet and spontaneous bursts of chanting, sudden and mournful hymns, hopeful melodies, all unplanned and breathed into being only by way of the mysterious combination of bodies that filled the room, their stories, their experiences, the things that lived in them. Who started the singing? What were we singing? Who ended each song? No one, and yet everyone knew. At one point, one of my other new friends, I heard her burst out into what I now understand as speaking in tongues. In one corner of the space, there was a progressive form of confession set up and another a candle for meditation along with the book, Dr. Seuss's uh, Oh, the Places You'll Go. It was set open like scripture. In the center, people were slowly walking around a large labyrinth. Up on a balcony, there were tools for coloring mandalas and for making prayer beads. And in every other corner of this vast space, so many other simultaneous opportunities for reflection and healing and gratitude and communion. In every pew, the stunning variety of humanity seeking the holy. I was taking it all in, trying to sort through my own reactions, the way that each of these experiences were bringing up past stories, past ways of being, past rituals that lived in me. I was feeling awe and gratitude 
and also resistance and disorientation when my friend came and tapped me on the shoulder and whispered, can I wash your feet? I had been in every corner of the worship space by then, except intentionally that part. I mean, that part that was filled with Jesus. Jesus, who I had long ago outgrown. Stations of the cross, a giant crucifix laid out on the floor with people kneeling there in, I don't know, adoration. And then there were those chairs and the basins with a pitcher of water and towels, all of these things solidly from my past. Can I wash your feet? Yes. She took me by the hand and led me to a chair where she took off my shoes and placed my feet in the warm water gently and then wiped them clean. As she worked, I felt a sense of everything coming together in me. These years of holy weeks growing up where 12 women and men would come to the front of my Catholic church and awkwardly take off their shoes and socks to have their feet washed by the elders, the leaders of the church. The words from the gospel of John, Lord, do you wash my feet? The alienation I felt knowing the Catholic Church did not want me as me. The ways my church helped my parents justify the terrible things that they said and did to me and my partner in those early years. The patriarchy that had finally pushed me away. And also my friend here tenderly washing my feet. This devout Catholic woman who had remained loyal to the church, feeling a call to priesthood, unwilling to be turned away. She claimed a wholeness in the midst of this tradition that would, would prefer to split her as if it was the most simple and obvious thing to do. In that moment, she was a priest in the truest sense. She took my feet in her hands and I felt every part of the ritual as it was intended. Humility, forgiveness, healing, love. All the stories and, and experiences that live deep in me that I had thought of as entirely past, that I had outgrown. All of these came rushing into my body, except they were ghosts that were not just haunting me, but offering themselves like a gift. After he rejects the Jack and the Beanstalk as an image for spiritual growth, Rob Hardy's turns instead to another story a lot of us will be encountering in the coming weeks, that is the Grinch that stole Christmas. He says, perhaps you remember the moment near the end of Dr. Seuss's beloved Christmas tale when the Grinch rides his sleigh up Mount Crumpet. And just before he's about to jettison the gifts, he pauses to listen for the weeping of the who's down in Whoville. He expects to hear the weeping and he hears singing instead. At first that singing, it doesn't make any sense to Mr. Grinch, but he finally understands, Dr. Seuss tells us. And then the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. For a lot of us, 
we assume that the only way to deal with the ghosts of our past beliefs or our past selves is in a posture of weeping. I mean, like Mr. Grinch, I thought if I listened closely enough to the stories of those gay Christians, I would too hear eventually their grief, their crying. And sometimes there is. The pain and harm from our religious past is very real and requires intentional work of tending and healing. And also alongside the weeping, there is also often singing because we don't actually grow our souls in a straight line. We don't grow ourselves in a straight line. We grow more in a pattern like one of my favorite playwrights, Susan Lori Parks, what she calls rep and rev or repetition and revision. Influenced by jazz and the use of a similar musical refrain in repetition with slight revisions each time, she talks about rep and rev as a drama of accumulation. The story is not one of traveling of beginning, middle, end from A to B, but rather from A to A to A to B to A to B to C to A. Our path of spiritual growth doesn't start all over with each discovery or change of heart. Each new experience meets with the past, and we repeat and revise and grow and become. Rather than imagining that we are ascending vertically toward a single destination, we need to understand our growth as, as growing in every dimension, in ever-expanding embrace of contradictions and tensions, so that we might embrace more and more of the world and of life. There is a deep humility required in understanding growth like this. It asks us to center mystery in every direction and in every part of ourselves. Now, despite what you might think, as a progressive faith movement, Unitarian Universalists have really struggled to practice this sort of humility of centering mystery. For example, when we embraced a humanist-centered religious path in the 1930s, many understood it as a break from the past centuries of Unitarian Christianity. That is a discovery entirely rational and scientifically sound, a new start on a new path towards spiritual success, again, onward and upward forever. But in reality, our humanist impulses were not actually an entirely new path. They were more so a re-engagement of our long and winding past that prioritized humanity and relationships and a this-worldly justice. They were a repetition of the past and a revision. A to A to B to A to C to B to C to D rep and Rev. The writers of the Humanist Manifesto didn't think of it like this. However, they were set on drawing a line between those past paths and this new and real truth, which is why maybe their manifesto failed to engage what humanist William Schultz describes as the interior haunts of the unconscious, of guilt, of passion, and pain which are so central in the Christian belief system they were trying so hard to entirely reject. 
staking their claim in the realm of this entirely new path, they miss the chance to meet our traditions, ghosts, not just as grief, but as gifts. They miss the chance to meet, not just, not just hear the weeping, but to hear the song. If we were to attempt writing that humanist manifesto today, however, I'm not sure it is possible that we would forget to talk about pain. The realities we face in our everyday push us to confront so much, too much, that breaks our hearts. It would be simpler in today's reality, of course, to just pick a narrative, a single belief system that is black and white with tools that are confident and clear to say, we have arrived. The good guys and the bad guys, we got them sorted out. The good guys are rewarded. The bad guys are punished. It would be easier to declare that what we know now and this place where we've arrived is, is and will ever stay righteous and right especially after the news, like with the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict this week, to hold the reality of his vigilante racism wrapped in righteousness, the reality of all who lift him up as some sort of hero, to hold this alongside the reality of the harm he caused and the harm the system that was designed to protect him caused, has caused for generations. To let all of this into our hearts without closing off to anyone or anything, to grow souls that can hold this much complexity and tensions together, it can feel impossible and too much to ask of our weary hearts. Which brings me back to the Thanksgiving story we will all encounter in one way or another this week. Despite a general awareness of the ways this story is untrue and harmful, the myth persists in the hearts of many of us today. There's a power in it that we just can't quite shake. And I've come to believe that it's because even though it isn't true, there is a value within this story that continues to resonate something that we want to claim as the heart of why we gather. Values of hospitality across difference and gratefulness for life's gifts. Values of the simple act of sitting together for a meal. Alongside the weeping, there is also song. And so rather than attempting to reject this story entirely with a kind of smug confidence, as if it is the ghost we have outgrown. We can acknowledge the ways that the story still lives in us. Engaging the ghosts of our past beliefs in this way requires a deeper reckoning and acknowledgement of not just that singing, but also the harm, the harm that was caused, the harm that still lives among us now, including as evidenced by the events in Kenosha. It requires us to keep remembering that alongside those gifts, there still is that grief. The call of courageous love is to hold all of these things together, to take, take stock fully of those ghosts of our religious and philosophical past, the past selves, individually, collectively, to meet them all with that wonder and awe, trembling and humility, and I remember so well feeling in that vast worship space many years ago. The call of courageous love is a call to hold all of these things together. To withstand the pain of life, all of it, while also still holding on to the thread of life's beauty. 
We need a faith that invites us to put everything on the table. A faith that acknowledges and brings in all these ghosts of our past, our past selves, our past beliefs, our past ways of being, and tends fully to the harm while not letting go of the hope. We need a faith where nothing is off limits. A faith where we can grow our souls in 3D, holding on to that mystery in every direction. A faith where we can turn to every tool, every way of making meaning so that we can keep learning, keep becoming, keep loving more and more of this broken and still beautiful world. May it be so. And amen. I have a little postlude. I don't know what do you recall that. I, I have a postscript. Yeah. About the story. All right. Um, I want to hear it. The woman who I talk about in the, that washed my feet. So I want to say at the time, the way I perceived her was like every, like, I'm sorry to her right now if she ever hears this, but I, I received her like every conservative Catholic, but with a social justice bent that I'd ever worked, like ever encountered in my life. So in that way, like I didn't really question the fullness of who she was or what she exactly was <laughs> engaging in her life. Even, I mean, she was young. I, anyway, she was awesome. I love, loved her, loved that whole encounter, but I experienced her as like really, you can hear in the way I tell the story a devout Catholic woman considering seminary. Well, guess what? Three years later, she came out and now she's, <laughs> she's like left the church and has a, like she lives with her partner and, and talks about the injury that she experienced to the, that Catholic church, particularly for coming out. Mm. So, you know, I didn't choose to obviously like, like I can't, the story doesn't quite work in the same way by telling that component of that of the story or even um, like I wondered how how she would tell the story. But it's just like it's like thinking about that. It's such a good example of the ways that like there's such truth and value in the story as it was then. And the experience she and I had, of course, what she thought about, like what she was asking me to these changes by knowing the questions that were actually on her heart mm. and what it meant. Like to me, it was part of a sense of Catholicism accepting me mm. and accepting mm -hmm. my queerness, mm -hmm. you know, and accepting my, at the time, really staunch atheism. And I, I and now I think, I don't know. That's how I experienced it. But now I know there was so much more going on in what she was doing. And it doesn't it doesn't change the value to me of what I experienced, but it is a good, a good example of like, oh, over time, it turns out that that, that we were both in process. <laughs> my, my heart wants uh, my heart wants to say that revelation adds like a disruptive element to the story in, in an even more interesting, complex way. Yeah, I mean, like, if it's two queer women who have been, like, um, who've been injured by the Catholic Church, who've been told that our, our, our ourselves are not acceptable, who are, in turn, in, like, encountering this ritual where she's washing my 
feet. Like it is, it's a very different story really than, you know, my own my kind of own selfish approach of the story, my own internalized sense of like being healed in my Catholicism. But you know, that's, that's, that's the 3D to me is like, there's something I like truly didn't know. And maybe she didn't totally know either. And that it's in process for both of you. It's not over yet. I mean, you know, both who she was then, like who she was then truly and who I experienced her as will remain a really important part of my own formation. Mm-hmm. Like that 12 years later, I remember every moment of that experience. I remember it like in a way that I, I like, not, there's not that many things I remember like that. And so it was it, there. It doesn't really, in some ways, it doesn't really matter <laughs> who, who she was in that at like the experience was the experience it, but it, but it, instead it has like just this other dimension and that it just opens us up. To, like it reminds you of, just how much is going on in any given time that you really have no idea about and how something is working on everybody else. There, there were hundreds of people in that space. You know, who else was having a transformative encounter with their past or their future in that space that, that would talk about it in the same way, you know, and then that multiply that times, you know, all of, all the different kinds of ways were changed and shifted and, you know, that we encounter each other. I was thinking when you were talking about evolution earlier, I just read a quote and I cannot remember who said it, but that I, the way that I remember it is that there is no such thing as a as single, as solo evolution. That, that we, that none of us change or grow in silos. There's truly like, literally there is no such thing. It's all co-evolution. And so I think there's something just so powerful about that because it's so much more exponential than we ever really understand in our own minds. And I think that piece is one of the challenges that I've always had with early humanism. The emphatic clarity of truth that they had arrived. And I mean, it's not just humanism. What I found when I I encountered Catholicism, I went to a Catholic undergrad school. I had to take Catholic theology for my for my degree. Like I encountered a a degree of beliefs that held mystery and a lack of understanding as part of the core experience of being human, which I I struggled with as an atheist at the time. But it also rang true to me. In a way that as I read the early humanists, their claim to capital T truth being clear and revealable felt good, but didn't hold muster to my experience of life, which is far more nuanced and gray and opaque in terms of understanding my own experience and our collective experience. And yet what I do know is that there is something that happens in our relating to one another that is powerful and goes beyond my my finite conceptions of what should be true and what is true. And so there is something about 
placing mystery and humility at the center of faith and existence that that feels like so core to our posture. It's that posture of embrace that we lose out to with fundamentalism. And, and I think we ascribe to fundamentalism so much of the time as progressives. Fundamentalism feels good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that struck me as you're describing the humanists was thinking of the ways that part of what we're describing and part of what the sermon is describing is what we would call a conversion experience. And so there's something really joyous in declaring your conversion and in the sense of, I used to believe this. Now I believe this. I used to identify in these ways. Now I identify in these ways. And so I think what we're asking is to think about like, what does it mean to be quote unquote converted and leave room for mystery? Because I think both of those things need to be possible because like the process of being of really of transforming in a way you want to proclaim, I think is fundamental to, to the growth experience too. It's just how do you then proclaim that with a degree that people can trust and with some joy while still saying, and I'm still becoming, and mystery is still a part of who I am or something like that. And how do you live in process? Like it's not, it's not just that, oh, I think I've arrived, but I might be wrong. It's like, how do, how do we integrate that? that sense of humility and openness into the very fabric of how we live. Without compromising a sense of what, ethical, it, what feels true, right. right. Or, or, or yeah. ethical principles or that being able to stake claims, because I also really believe in staking a claim on what you believe. It's just that, that sent that central to that has to keep this little, just a, just a fundamental the way i described it in the sermon that it's not just mystery in yourself it's mystery in every direction and to continue to acknowledge the ways that what we knew about the past what we can say we know about the past remains partial what we can say about the future remains partial what we can say about now remains partial how do we and so these are our continuous like best guesses to proceed that ultimately, this is why I'm glad we're in a covenantal faith, <laughs> because because I think it acknowledges that that coevolution at the center of of how we grow. All right, I want to tell a story to close us out. So, the other day, I took my ADHD medication later than I usually do. Usually, I take it around like seven, seven thirty, and it lasts, you know, till about six in the afternoon. But I, I forgot because, you know, ADHD. And so I took it at 9.30, which is like 9.30 in the morning, which means that I, I knew I was going to be up most of the evening. But it was the right choice. And so I found myself at like 7 o'clock still alert, still stimulated. And so I remembered that I'd gotten into a, a little fight with my husband about using his sink in the bathroom. It's like a long story. Anyways, 
turned out his sync was clogged and he was annoyed that I was using it that was kind of showing the clog to him more often because it wasn't draining. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to fix the clog in the drain. Now, I, I know very little about how things work in the mechanical realm, but I figured it wasn't too hard. And so I got a bucket and I tried to find pliers and I, I was able to undo it all. And I only needed help for a little bit. I unclogged it. I didn't vomit from the smell. I won't go into the details of it because the story is not actually about me doing a good thing. But what what was hilarious was like he encountered me halfway through this this process. The look on his face was this incredible shock that he would find me doing that. Like it was just out of character. And the next day I came home from visiting someone at the hospital and he's like, open the fridge. And I opened the fridge and the entire fridge was clean and not just like, and I had like pointed out the like things in the fridge that I needed taken care of because it got to the point where I couldn't think of it because there was mold there. And he had like taken care of all of those things. He'd washed all of the shelves. He'd taken out all of the drawers and had done that. And I had that same surprise look on my face, I think, that he had for me. And so there's something about that experience of doing things that surprise ourselves, evoking that, like invoking that in others. And how we do evolve together. And our and thank goodness for that. And I mean, it, it pulls us down. I feel like what I'm preaching on this week is the other side of that, right? About how our evolution together passes down the, the trauma. And yet this shows that there's something in our interchanges in which we can go beyond what we thought of who we are and who we think other people are. And it's beautiful. Mm. And it's, it's, it's what's needed. It's hopeful. Right. So I guess the message ultimately is like, go do something that's out of character. I, I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think go it's- Go surprise yourself. Go be surprised. I mean, my internal identity definitely was not someone who would fix that. My internal identity was someone that would get his husband to fix it. <laughs> Realize something about myself. Your internal identity is also somebody who would take responsibility for something you feel like maybe you didn't do right. Yeah, and I mean, that's, so that's part of it. Partly you were trying to, you had a cognitive dissonance between your two values, right? Like you're mm -hmm. take responsibility and I, I fix plumbing. So <laughs> ultimately you chose the higher value um, and that led you to fix plumbing, which in turn led him to fix the fridge. It's a good lesson. It's good, good for lesson. Thanksgiving too. I think so. And there's something about the the freedom that we can give ourselves to encounter mm. ourselves in a new way. Mm. Yeah, and to uh, like and to the freedom of realizing like today the thing you've been saying to yourself I'm not that. You could you could make a choice to be that today. And you could just you could and that there's a way in which freedom is contagious. Mm. That when we encounter others and we witness their freedom, their non-reactiveness, the way they're able to encounter 
situations with compassion and grace and and nuance and self-differentiation you're like i want some of that yeah gretchen and i had a conversation that was over an hour long but i'm gonna have to cut it off i want to thank you for listening to this slightly longer than usual episode of the deeper podcast i hope you enjoy this kind of behind the scenes look at how we prepare this sort of content and and all that's kind of left on the cutting room floor. We're so grateful that you've been listening to the hundreds of you that listen each week. We'd love to know who you are. If you're not connected to our Foothills community already, we invite you to get in touch. You can email us at deeperpod, that's deeperpod at foothillsuu.org. We'd love to know where you are, what's your story, how you found us. Well, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>